Welcome to Lineouts by Earful of Dirt, bringing you conversations with rugby newsmakers about the greatest sport on the planet. Welcome to Earful of Dirt Lineouts. Uh, I'm Aaron Castro. You can find me at the Strobro, and we're with Rajard Chadwick. I think I said that right. Maybe we just said it wrong. Um, he uh, is the executive director for Northeast Rugby Academy. You can find him at uh, Rashard Chadwick uh, on Twitter. Just type his name um, and you should be good to go. And uh, you will see this guy that has these very, this very long hair, good trim beard, you know, um, and he just, he just does what he does. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we came together sort of on this really fast. I did little research and we had to talk for a while uh, before we, hold on 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 what northeast rugby academy does um in part because you guys will be playing um the utah warriors in a 15 setup which is a bit different because i know that like invitationally like we just spoke like you guys do a lot of sevens to you know invitational tournaments i'm guessing tropical sevens is one of those kind of things that you guys go down and do but you're more than as we discussed, you're more than just sort of this invitational sevens tournament um, organization. You guys do things every day, every week, pretty much of the year to support um, both the club game and players to um, one day achieve, um, not status, but one one day achieve selection for the national team, whether it is in sevens or fifteens. And we can see that with results, um, in a very fast manner, uh, Christy Kirsch went from Boston Rugby Club and playing a, and going through Northeast Academy sessions to USA Sevens. Now, granted, Christy Kirsch is a high-level athlete playing Division One soccer, but just with um, playing for – is it Boston or Beantown? I forget. It's Boston. Boston. I uh, There's I, – I, I live in Phoenix, and it's a little hot right now. So, But, uh, yeah, you see – um, she's not the only one that has come through Northeast, but like, that's basically what we're here to talk about is what you guys do on a daily basis with players. When you get players in for sessions and what you do on a weekly and monthly, and then sort of yearly basis in support of, you know, players and coaches. Yeah, I guess. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, it was, it was a pretty fast, uh, uh, setup, I guess, but that's, that's fine. Stitch um, up. You stitched I'm, me I'm, up. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a doer. I don't, I don't wait around for things. So, uh, that's fine. Um, yeah, I guess so. The Northeast um, is effectively uh, what USA Rugby would now call a national development program, um, uh, or un- under review, uh, as as most people are still putting applications in. So we're we're a national development program under review, um, and we were effectively the old Olympic Development Academy under USA Rugby. And so we started off around men's sevens and developing men's sevens in the northeast of, of the US uh, and really looking at the, the top players and the, the best players in the area and developing them to give them a step up and a, and a, a bridge from their clubs to the national team. So developing um, players like Nate, players like Connor, Chris Martino, um, those kind of players to get from their clubs, whether it's the, the Nikes, the Old Blues, the Mystic Rivers, to the national team. Um, and our focus has changed throughout the years. Our, our model has changed slightly throughout the years. We, we started the women's program in 2014-15. And, you know, we've had great success with our women's program, developing players up to that level as well. Christy Kirst that you mentioned, uh, Sarah Bonapane, Natalie Costco, um, you know Sarah Levy, and and you know the list the list keeps going. And so, what we what we tend to do is 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 bridge that gap between the club level and the national team level. Um, we also have some other programs that we that we run. We we run uh, our elite player development, which we've discussed, our coach education, and we also have our community engagement. And so we do a whole range of. Um, activities, programs, and work with a whole bunch of different people across the Northeast to really help grow and supplement rugby uh, in, in the area. So we look at what you do, um, let's just say what a week looks like 
um, in rugby season for Northeast Academy in support of the players that you have that come to you to whether it's to just better their game um, for the club game or if they actually, you know, do have national team aspirations because like you just listed off a ton of players that have achieved um, whether it's national sevens or, or national 15s, um, you know, recognition for, and caps um, coming through your system. So what does a typical week look like in support of just, I would say club, the club game before we get to, you know, pushing guys and, and gals in a high performance environment to, to upskill them, I guess, in the gaps of the season. Yeah, I think um, so on a weekly basis, we, we don't engage too much on the field or in, in training environments with the players because we are a supplementary program. Um, we don't, we don't own any players and we don't, um, you know, we don't con- contract any players out. So the players choose to come to us for their own development. Um, however, what we do is we work uh, around the club schedule and make sure that those players are getting the right um, added supplementary programming that they need in order to be effective in their club game. But then also when they come together, we, we can set the standards a little bit higher when they come together from, you know, let's, let's take the, the Nike, the Mystics, the old blue uh, kind of triangle uh, that, that that used to be there, um, and they come together, and then the performance raises. And so, it's a lot more of uh, the one percenters with the Northeast Academy. How do you get the one percenters up, and how do you uh, how do you have the right mindset to to work daily um, in order to then be effective on the field when you represent the Northeast? So, when you have the chance to like bring all players in from whether it's I'm guessing just based on sort of the high performance that is men's division one in the Northeast, you get a lot of players from there, but you also get players from, from other clubs in the Northeast as well. Like what is the difference? I guess your, your club pull from the men's to the women's side, because there is a lot of high level women's rugby in the Northeast as well. Yeah, so the, the models change slightly with the men's. We were looking at a little bit younger than typically um, at the U23 catchment area mainly just because of the, the MLR. And now instead of looking to develop players to get into the national team uh, straight away, we're, we're now more focused on developing these players and giving them opportunities to try and gain MLR contracts. Hopefully then from there, the MLR contracts will allow them to represent their country. On the women's front, it's a little bit older just because of um, the the nature of the women's game. It's still not professional here. Um, you know, hopefully one day it will become professional for the women. Uh, but until then, we'll be working on working with the women to try and push for the national team sevens and fifteens. So, let's look at um, sort of I guess your your coming together programming because you do um, take teams to. Um, invitational tournaments, uh, like Tropical Sevens being one of them, I guess now the LA Sevens tournament would be another. Um, and, and there, I'm guessing there are a smattering of others. Um, and this is where you where you overlap in the development system. You, you guys then bring these players together. How long, what is the environment that you try to put players in when you have them for, in a sense, a full-time period? And what do the full-time periods look like in preparation for those tournaments versus, you know, I guess on a non-day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's interesting. So, uh, again, because we're supplementary, we can't take away from the clubs. Um, however, what we do is we we tend to these tours that we have. So we, we'll go down to Barbados or we'll go to Spain uh, in some international tournaments. And then we'll also have the domestic tournaments that you mentioned. Um, but what we'll do is we'll typically have the players play in their season for their clubs. We'll watch them. Um, we'll invite players into the, into, the, uh, into the squads, into the training groups, and we'll have a, a, a six-week, four-week period where we'll work with the players um, around their club schedule. Um, but then also if their club schedule closes, we can work with them a lot, a lot closer. Um, but what we'll do is we'll work up with a bigger group of players and then make a squad selection and then a, a traveling selection of players uh, and we'll work with them that way up, up to the tournament. So I guess, and this goes into, you talked about providing supplementary programming. How has that uh, 
changed or how's it, how has it been had a greater evolution during this period that we've had? Cause you talk about, I'm guessing part of what you do is I wouldn't say distance learning, but distance training. If you're going to be um, a, a daily supplement per se uh, during the club season, what have you guys done to, I guess, to shift in the COVID-19 environment? Yeah, it's actually been a, a cool opportunity for us. We, we haven't really um, done much work with the players per se. Um, what, but what we've done is done a lot of work on the organizational end of things. And so we've brought on a, a whole bunch of new staff. Uh, we've, we've, we've really focused on our programming, what our programming looks like. Um, the, the kind of like the, uh, the mission, the vision of the academy, where we're going to be going forward, the strategic plans, um, and really just creating a platform that once we're allowed to play rugby again, we can really start to develop players in the way that they deserve to be developed. And so you guys also do coach development. So what is, uh, I guess, the regular uh, coach development curriculum and how you guys put that in place on a day-to-day basis or year-long basis when you do get a chance to work with coaches directly um, versus, you know, now, I guess? Yeah, so the the coach development is an interesting one, right? Because if if there's any any – any good coach will tell you that you're constantly learning. And so just like our programs evolve, our coach development evolves as well. And we, we have done in the past mentoring and shadowing programs for coaches to come and watch uh, what we, we would call our elite coaches um, who are just coaches that are coaching at the, the high performance level, I guess, or the, uh, the elite level. Um, but what we, what we started to do uh, at the start of 2020 was a coach development program for the community coaches. Uh, so with the college coaches, the high school coaches, um, and that was all designed to be online uh, before COVID hit. And so we started our online development programs with the coaches and we, we, we've done a year long program. Uh, and we're in about 10 months, 10 months, of nine months of it now where we have a module or a topic that we talk about every month and drip feed information in versus do like a one day, two day course, which you typically see because coaching isn't something that you can learn overnight. It has to be something that you can understand, uh, process, synergize with your own ideas, put into practice, um, and then also go and question it and, and really think about it at a deeper level. And the, the year long program allows us to really get into the depths of, of, of the coaching practice or the pedagogy side of things, which allows coaches then to develop and get better. Uh, using pedagogy. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure you and Alex Magleby uh, can nerd out on high level education words. I remember sitting down with him and talking about, you know, his sort of methodology and what he looks at for sort of building things. And that's where they went to, to, uh, you know, pe- pedagogical um, sort of systems and mindset for the selection of um, their the newest coach with uh, Ryan Martin up in the New England Free Jacks. So, uh, what is now? I mean, we've covered a lot of what um, Northeast does, and we'll probably we'll go back there. But what is really your background in rug in the sport here? Obviously, you're not from the United States, based on that accent. So. Um, where did you play? What did you play? Do you like uh, molded or are you a studs guy? Um, so I'll tell you what I tell all the players that I initially first meet is I never played the game. Um, whether that's true or not, who knows? Uh, but what I, what I did do is I started coaching at the age of 14. Uh, I was coaching U10s at my local club uh, and I got my refereeing coaching certification uh, when I was 15. And Went on then and just coached at every opportunity, refereed at every opportunity I could. Uh, went to college and studied coaching. Uh, so I have two degrees, uh, undergraduate and a master's in coaching. Uh, I am published in coaching uh, journals, uh, materials. Uh, I've been on a few magazines with the like, Ruby Coach Weekly with Dan Cottrell and things like that. Um, also just mainly being a practitioner and a, a, a love uh, a lover of coaching and uh, learning for since basically since I picked up a rugby ball. So um, that's kind of my background. I moved over here when I was eight years uh, eight years ago now, uh, and 
I initially got brought over by Mark Griffin, uh, working with Playrib USA, which is why I'm in New York. And I worked for them for seven and a half years, seven years. And I've just continued to coach at any, any opportunity, any level, whether it's grassroots, whether it's um, men, women, whether it's college, whether it's uh, coach education with USA Rugby and World Rugby, whether it's my own, uh, my own brand, um, whether it's my own articles that I'm writing, it's just continued education and continued learning and sharing of ideas and opportunities for people. Well, at 14, it's pretty, pretty hard to really specialize in a position because you could end up being a fly half at 14 and then, uh, you know, you know, bloom into the size of a lock by the time you're 18. So, but obviously transitioning to coaching at 14 is very like interesting. Um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't a transition as it much was a, well, I can only play once, once a week kind of thing, but I can coach whenever I can. So it was, I can play and coach at the same time. Yeah, I, I can definitely, you don't really see that a lot in the U S with the, that sort of just because we train so much um, in our sports, especially when you get to the high school level, you don't have um, in a sense, the, the ability to uh, coach and play at the same time when you're, when you're that old. Um, but uh <laughs> This is this is a funny comment. <laughs> I no, I was never a fly half. I was a wing at one point, but I was very slow. Uh, and then I obviously am a bald hooker. Um, obviously, I didn't go bald playing rugby. Sadly, that would have been a great experience. But um, that, that's just—I mean—that's fascinating because you don't really see that a lot. You do see um, in—I think you're seeing it less. But guys used to. Um, I think you're seeing it in rugby where you still have young referees, like kids are becoming referees sort of uh, in the mold because some of their parents are referees, right? Mm -hmm. Some of these, some of these kids are, are refing, you know, really high level for their age in the U S and, but you don't really see that a lot, like in other sports in the U S just because in a sense we like train so much. So you don't have the ability to ref a game. And also play the game at the same time uh, because you're usually playing on the same day and you're usually playing not at the same field. So it's really tough. That's, that's really cool to see, you know, Hey, you were refing and coaching at the same time, but uh, just, it's a very different cultural aspect that is in a sense, doesn't necessarily work here. I guess it could work here because we don't, most rugby teams don't train four days a week and play a game. Um, but the high schools that do take rugby seriously, that have basically a, a fully supported program, they're training like their football teams. So it's like they're, <laughs> your ability to do other things is very limited. Yeah, um, and I think I think culturally you said it there as well. So I remember my first my first year of refereeing, I refereed over sixty games in a season, uh, and I was fifteen, and so um, that that experience alone. Uh, was a huge, huge uh, learning curve in my development. And one of the things that you don't see over here is, is the trust um, for for young players. If they, if they want to referee, then they get the certification. They don't get the trust to go out and do maybe a U14 game or a U16 game. When I was 17, I was refereeing. Uh, when I was 16, 17, I was refereeing men's club games. And you just wouldn't get that over here at the moment because of the competitive nature of the U.S., I think, is everybody wants to win all the time. And there's no sense of we can just play a game for development reasons or enjoyment reasons. Everyone's trying to get that next step up, that next uh, um, national championship or the next, um, you know, I, we pride or we beat this team and we're the, we're the best team in the area kind of thing versus, hey, let's just play rugby to, to enjoy yeah. it and, and to really... That's something to, that I think we're severely lacking in the U.S. is referee development. So you could probably put that under your things that, uh, you know, Northeast does because, you know, playing as a senior club player, at, you know, where I played uh, most of my rugby, which is uh, out here in Phoenix, but really most of the rugby I've played uh, was in El Paso, um, either with the El Paso Scorpions or the Fort Bliss Warriors and then playing in the Rio Grande, which is 
El Paso and New Mexico. That's basically the Rio Grande Union. And you basically would have the same two or three refs the entire time. The entire time. So you got to knew, know them, but I think, you know, they're they're all older guys, and, you know, God bless them for getting out there and, and you know, refing games. But at the same time, it's like, I think as a player, I would have minded – I would have been cool if like an 18, 20 year old that was fit that could run up across and down the pitch that knew the laws. And cause you watch signals and I'm like, what did he just say? Yep. Like, I mean, and that's like sort of where most of rugby refereeing is in the United States. Like I, I mean, I think many people would appreciate much younger referees because in certain parts of the United States, you have the same three or four guys and for an entire league. And they, it never changes because no one else wants to become a referee. And I think now I've definitely appreciated what referees do in sport a lot more. And I used to say I would never want to be a referee because everyone hates officials. I mean, everyone, it's just, just, just the culture. I mean, people say that's not like not normal in other countries, but the more I watch games, like especially at the youth level, yep. I think at the professional level, and at the senior club level, it's a bit different um, outside of the U.S. when it comes to referees. But if you watch, you talk about pressure and the pressure to win. Like if you're coaching uh, Hamilton boys or Otago boys down in uh, down in New Zealand or something like that, uh, the pressure that is upon a referee from those parents because or even from the students that are watching because they make the entire school turn out for their first let, me ask, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. So, if 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 those players are able to play at that level, why can't somebody referee at that level at that age? Oh, it's I a think hard, it's a, it's a lot harder to play the game under pressure than it is to referee under pressure at that level. It's interesting to think about, right? Um, we so we, we we don't really think about that side of the things. We think about right. Well, you don't really know the game, so you can't referee it. So, well, I don't know the game and I play it. Right. Or I don't know. Yeah. And so and another thing that I think people don't really look at is what, what are the characteristics that you have that can make a good referee? What are the characteristics that can make a good coach? And identifying that early and saying, hey, look, you can still play the game, but maybe you should go on this referee course and maybe you should uh, go on this coaching course. Or maybe do you want to assist me with a, another team that I'm with and watch me coach um, like that? Does that happen across the U.S.? I'm not so sure. Um, uh, not in rugby, definitely just certain things. And I think, um, it's going away in, in other sports, like something like that, because we just, in a sense, we don't have the time. We're so high performance driven at such a young age in, in the other sports in the U S like culturally that, um, you know, in a sense, you talk about like develop, like playing the game for fun and developing. I remember playing, you know, soccer at a young age, you know, at four or five. Well, now you're going to play on your ASO team at seven years old, and then you're going to play on your club team. So two days a week, you're playing, practicing with your ASO team. The other two days, you're playing with your club team. And then on Saturday, you're playing your ASO game. And then on Sunday, you might be playing a, your club game in another state. Like, mm-hmm. so that's, that's soccer in America right now, which in a sense, thankfully is not the rugby space, but it could end up being the rugby space, which would be a problem. Um, but that is sort of, and you see it in basketball too, until kids get to high school. It's just that, you know, you're going to play your rec league team and then you're going to go like the other, the next day. So you're playing, you know, at 12, 13 years old, you're playing, easily at least two games a week, maybe four, maybe five, maybe six, and you're practicing all the other days. And you see this in – and then in baseball, it's the same way. That's just sort of how the system works here, right? So you have – you lose the ability to develop young officials because of that, I think. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you lose the ability to develop young – players as well because you you're so boxed into this one sport and you, you're not developing transferable skills from across other sports that you can then implement when you're you know 16 17 18 years old um 
you know, if you're just playing soccer your whole life and you're not very good at soccer, what's what's going to happen when you're 14, 15, 16 years old? You're going to drop out. Uh, but if you can play multiple sports when you're younger, you can then find an avenue where you can fit. You may find a culture that you like. You may find a, a team or a group of people that you you associate with and you can you can continue that sport. I think what happens is there's too much pressure. There's too much elitist pressure at the younger levels where what happens is that people people drop out of sports because of that. Um, and the reality is, is we all watch sports. We all enjoy sports. So why not play it for as long as possible? I disappeared. I don't know what happened, but uh, I hope you kept talking. <laughs> oh, I, I, I did, yeah. I did. <laughs> I don't even know what I did, but uh, sorry about that. Yeah, I, sorry, I, I figured I, you'd come back. I agree with you. I, I think that one thing we're missing because of the pressure to be so good at, at a specific sport, and you see this, you're starting to see this in rugby. I'll be honest, like in the United States, you're starting to see because where rugby tends to fit is sort of in the especially because we don't really have a, a massing of of sports at the of athletes at the grassroots level is that rugby fits at the club level and not in the rec level, which could be OK, um, depending on what's going on. But you have some of these teams now that are practicing, whether they're if like you have like an MIAA in Massachusetts because it's a varsity sport. Those guys practice as much as uh, their football players, which is good and bad. You know, once you get to high school, as long as we're respecting seasonality, I think you have the ability to develop a whole athlete uh, later throughout that process. Like, whereas one of the things you run into in American sport a lot uh, is and I think that we run into like, I know rugby coaches talk about how territorial football coaches are, but it's not just, it's like, if you're not a coach at the school, then you really don't kind of matter in a sense for, for that person. Like if you're not a school employee, they don't really care. Be it, whereas they would have to, the football coach or the basketball coach, or the track coach, or the water polo coach or whatever, you know, like it doesn't matter. Like what is the seasonality of the sport? And you run into issues like kids that play rugby, not as a supplement, but a just multi, multi-sport athlete um, go into foot, go into the school and they commit to football full time or they commit to basketball full time. And, and that there, and you, you lose some development, but then you have the rugby coach like trying to have Sometimes they're engaging and sometimes they're okay. And I think one of the things in general that sports, we just, everyone's so focused on succeeding at the, at the high school level, because if we go back to the high school, like here, everything's high performance, which I respect and I understand, like I really do. And I get it, but like, I think it, it runs into problems when it comes to just developing all the transferable skills that go beyond just the sport, right? So, well, I mean, the, the only coaches in the country that should be really concerned about winning is the national team coaches and the MLR coaches, um, when their livelihood literally depends on their ability to win a World Cup or an Olympic Games uh, or, you know, an MLR trophy. Um, everybody else, may, maybe colleges have a little bit of that pressure because of the, the pressure from the schools. Um, but everybody else should be really looking to develop and sometimes developing has winning as a byproduct and that's fine. But every, every coach should be looking to develop players in a way that they enjoy the game. They stay in the game and they get better at the game. And then once they leave playing, they, they stick around because what you don't want to see is, is people not liking a sport anymore or the thing that they've done for 10 years, just be destroyed because someone's put too much pressure on them to win. Um, performance and fulfilling talent and things like that, I think is a little bit different, but putting everything on the line to win a trophy, which is close to us at the end of the year. I don't really see a, um, there's not much excitement there for me anyway. So looking, unless that's your target. Yeah. Looking at that. So looking at that, when you, when you work with players and even when you work with coaches, how do you, um, in a sense, keep the focus on fun and enjoyment. Um, you know, like, cause people are coming like young men and women are coming to Northeast Academy to get better at the sport. Right. 
So how do you keep in a, whether it's as part of programming, just, you know, or mental health stuff, how do you keep them, I guess, in a sense grounded on part of it being processed, but just, you know, rugby is supposed to be fun. Well, I think, I think growth is happiness, right? So the more you grow, the more, the more happy you are in yourself. And so if you can leave a session saying, huh, I learned something today, then I'm probably going to come back. Um, and even even at the top level, you can still have fun and perform, right? So the the model, the simple model of the All Blacks is, um, if you've got a triangle, it's fun, it's learning, and that equals performance. And so keeping it fun, keeping it light, keeping it serious, whatever you want to do, but as long as you're progressing and you're getting better, people will enjoy that that process. Um, but they they have to be able to feel it, they have to be able to see it, they have to be able to understand the the reasons and the moments when they're getting better. So we've, we've looked at, you know, your support for athletes, your support for coaches. Now, when it comes to, I guess, some of this is, so what do you guys do with talent ID? Or is this, in a sense, just organic? Um, do Because you're focused specifically on the Northeast, so New York, uh, I guess, probably some New Jersey, North, like North Jersey-ish. New York and then New England together, like our, you know, our, our, our coaches that coach um, in the various leagues, just looking at their players and going, that person's really good. I think they have a shot going higher. Let's talk to like, obviously part of this is your relationships with coaches um, for talent ID, but are you guys actively, you know, I guess scouting? Yeah. So we, we have a number of, um, staff members now that are on board with us that coach at various levels um and also like you say the relationships that you have with other teams and so uh, i'll give you an example we've got um tom clark tc who's up in the um new england area who coaches at the high school level coaches at the college level and also at the the men's d1 level um and so he's able to see a full spectrum of of teams and players um we do have good relationships with coaches around the area and we do have people nominating and we do have people just reaching out and asking, Hey, can I be part of this team? And we're not ever going to really turn players away. Um, but what we're not going to do is grow to be a bigger club. If we don't think that players have got the level of ability or potential to sustain themselves at the level that we're, we're trying to get at, um, then you know we won't ask them to leave as much, but we'll we'll tell them the truth and say, look, we don't we don't think that, um, you know, in, in five years' time we don't see you representing the U.S. and and we may be wrong in that, um, but at the same time we need to focus on the players that we think have that potential. So, for example, if we're a sevens program and we've got a front row player who's three hundred and fifty pounds and they're great in fifteens. The reality is they're probably not going to play in a sevens men's team um, or, or, or women's team. And so, you know, we, there's, there's an element of truth there with, with, with people. And um, it, it kind of, instead of trying to chase a hopeless dream for some people, it, it, it's, it's ripping off a band-aid. It's, it's, it may hurt in the moment, but long term, it's, it's going to be better for them mentally and, and uh, in their long term futures. Um, in terms of talent ID, example, we've got a combine coming up this September 12th um, where that is open to everybody and anybody um, where we can come and see, right, well, okay, this is our current player pool. Is there someone that we haven't seen? Is there someone that wants to come along who's maybe 18 years old who believes that they've got what it takes? Um, let's let's have a look at them and let's see what they've got. So it's it's... It's, it's growing, and uh, we've now got our community arm uh, of the academy where we'll, we will be doing camps and clinics for, for younger age groups across the Northeast, and our coaches there will be able to talent, talent ID and, and really start to track those players through, from an, a young age. So I guess now we, we proceed on to, like, 15s, and you're talking about, like, a focus on, I guess, well, actually, let's backtrack. So, so say a player comes to you, and – for a certain period, like they have a lot of measurables and then their skills do develop over time. But at a certain point, you like there is a cap on skill acquisition. Like at a certain point in time, like you cannot get better. 
You can probably get fitter. I, I, th- this is the reality. Like um, genetics, I mean, genetics give you a whole lot, right? So this is like the genetics are sort of like the extreme cap of like where you're going to be as a player. You can outwork your genetics a lot. And some players do and some players and they talk about, hey, you know, certain pro players in, in a sport, you know, it's like he worked harder than his like he just worked harder than everybody else. But at a certain juncture, like if he didn't have good genetics, he wouldn't be there anyways. Right. Like he's just a little bit less talented and he just works harder. But he got there because he could play there. Period. But like, so a player comes to Northeast at a certain point, just over time, partially probably because of their age, they won't get better. Like, that's just sort of how that. So I guess my question is, you know, how often do you see players, you know, they do improve and probably improve significantly, but it, it doesn't progress to the point where they can stay on track for any goals that they may or may not have had. Maybe their goal was to just get better and that's it. And if things shook out, they, they just happened to get good enough. Yeah, I think, um, so I think a couple of things, I think you're right in terms of the, the physical attributes of players. So I think physically you will probably hit a, uh, a ceiling in terms of what you can accomplish with a body. Um, but in terms of your skill sets, I wouldn't agree that you have a ceiling. Um, ben Darwin would disagree you, with you. <laughs> a a skill set is a is a skill which can be learned, and you can learn to get better at something. So, if you're playing the piano, for example, I've never played the piano before, but can I learn to play it? Absolutely. Can I get better at it? Absolutely. I don't think people like uh, Johnny Wilkinson, Dan Carter, um, Owen Farrell. Bowden Barrett, you know, these really skilled players would say, I'm sitting out there on the field for three hours after practice every day because I have hit my ceiling and I, I can't get better. They, you can always get better at skill development. Um, you can always get better at rugby IQ. You can always get better at decision making. Is there a point where they become maybe too old to play at the national team level? Perry Baker was 30 when he first joined the circuit. Uh, and he's won player of the year twice in his yep. last three years. So is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? Probably not. Are you going to crush dreams and say that you're too old? Potentially, but you've got to tell them the truth. Yeah. Um, so, we, we, you know, we have players and say, look, this is, this is your reality. This is where you are. Uh, you've been at this for five years. Do you think it's going to happen in the next year? Are you working daily to make this happen? And if they're not, then it's probably not going to happen. And that's a that's a an honest conversation that we have with players. But I would also say as well is that now that the especially the sevens and the fifteens on the men's front, because they are professional now, they're in daily training environments where they're getting better and better and better. And the amateur players who are working hard are not developing as fast as they as, as their their peers above them are. So if the national team is here and the amateur players are here. Um, as soon as they went professional, they're going to start to get better. And players who are still playing their clubs are getting better, but not at the rate that the national team is getting yeah. better. And so that gap becomes a lot more difficult to bridge over time. And unless players are working daily at their craft, it's going to be very difficult for them to achieve those goals unless they're in environments where they're able to really start developing it. And so, you know, we, we talked about the Utah game um, at the start of this. And, you know, one of the reasons why we're, we're going out to Utah and playing in the Utah match is because we now have to bridge the gap between the club level and that development level and the MLR. And the MLR are now in a full-time environment where they're going to get better and better. So kids coming out of college, their gap is going to be that much more significant to jump. And so we need to be able to bridge that gap. And so playing the MLR selects sides is a really cool development opportunity for us because we're able to bridge that gap for certain players um, and certain players will gain the experience and love the experience and maybe the highest level they've ever played. And then they'll go, you know what, this isn't for me or this is for me. I'm hungry. I want more and really push for that contract. And then hopefully the, the, you know, the MLR teams will, will pick them up and say, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a, 
uh, an apprentice contract or uh, a part-time contract and you can play for our development side, but you're still in that training environment. Um, so one of one of our values of the Northeast is exposure uh, and putting them in environments and exposing them to environments where they can use them as they as lessons because you know who, who are we as, as as other people to tell somebody that you can't accomplish something um you can figure that out for yourself over time or you can you can jump into the deep end and, and give it a go and see what happens i mean we we've seen things sort of shift in mlr partially with investment as the roots go deeper because you just need to do this and you're seeing this with um first i would say you know houston had a partnership with the West Houston Lions, and now they're doing a full-time investment sort of going to what I would say is um, if we look at models, it was probably, you just say it was the the Atlanta model that was implemented last year, which is a fall high-performance development squad where in a sense, like, you know you're going to need to contract more players um, and you just give guys the opportunity to come into a full-time environment and, you know, literally grab contract and literally grab a shirt off someone else's back um and take their literally take their spot and you know obviously you're utah is going to put 23 30 guys on the field and not every one of them is going to get a chance to play for utah um in the mlr season but part of these things like if we look at 404 and how that system worked for them um you know, I think seven or eight guys got contracts to com- play for a rugby ATL. Like, so they played in, you know, the highest level of amateur rugby that you can play in, in, um, in the U S which is right. Which is division one club in the Atlantic American, depending on what year you, what year it is, yeah. it's either Atlantic rugby premiership or American rugby premiership. I don't know, but yeah. it, cha- it changes enough. Um, but in the ARP, um, you know, Life University, appear, obviously some of those players on the senior club team also played for rugby ATL, but it was the highest level of rugby that you could play. Um, and you saw, and guys in that environment performed, developed, and earned contracts. So what you're good, what you guys are going to do, especially, I guess, this is more unique because I guess we saw it a little bit, you know, the capital selects program, which is now aligned with uh, old glory DC as a, as a sponsor for them. Um, and I guess what will be, so you have, you know, you guys are the Northeast Academy. You're not rugby United New York. Cause I believe rugby United U- New York is also going to run, or at least we're planning to run a development season as well. So it's just a lot of things are up in the air because different governors are different people and, you know, we're in a different time. Right. So, but you guys, this is where like, it's really cool to see. And I think, you know, I think stars did a few 15s tours two years in a row with uh, playing against NOLA twice. I didn't, I don't think it worked out that well, but a few of those guys, I mean, it didn't work out that well score wise. They got, bludgeoned by new orleans twice but a few of those guys did get exposure and are playing in the league right now because um you know stars rugby did an invitational team and said hey you want to come and uh they went and played nola and some guys got an extra look because of that Mm -hmm. um so you know how did this opportunity come up for for northeast to play uh utah i mean we've I've talked with Brandon Sparks a few times about what they, what they're going to do. And, you know, they, I think it was originally four games. I don't know what it's like recently. I think the last thing we talked about was a uh, world's toughest race. So, uh, you know, that's uh, just go into conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's not always rugby. We, we, we're not really, we haven't really looked at the 15s game um, before. We've always, we've always talked about it in terms of it would be great to get a 15s, team going and um you know maybe a couple of times a year put a 15 squad together and see what we can do with it in terms of the the player development um but brandon reached out um and it was kind of like this is an opportunity where we can actually we can actually roll with it due to the current situation with um everything that's going on and we we looked at it in another way to attract 
more players as well because although the um, like Rooney have got their developmental team that they'll have the Free Jacks the same thing. There's still a huge number of players within the Northeast who are looking for opportunities, and if they don't get an opportunity with the Free Jacks or they don't get an opportunity with Rooney, then where do they play? Um, they can play at their clubs. Uh, so your Nyx, your Old Blues, your Mystics, kind of thing, but you only get to play those those teams. And so this is a way to expose players to another level of rugby that they may not have been exposed to. Um, and again, if we're if we're looking at that younger age group, if you're 22 and you've just come out of college, you may think you're the best thing, right? And then you go and play against a professional select side, like with the Utah team, and then you get a wake-up call. And then you've got to go, oh, actually, I've got some work to do. And then two, three years, you go and play for an old blue and or a Nyack or a Mystic and or, you know, a White Plains, whatever the team is. Um, and you, you, you work on your craft and then two, three years later, you come back out of it and you get a contract. Um, I mean, that's that's the real the aim for it. It's nothing more than exposure into different environments and the education that players will get from it and the experiences that they'll learn from. So, you know, this is not something that we're looking to do. OK, now we're going to go and play all the MLR teams across the country. Um, but it's something that we we can start to look into a little bit more with, with the amount of players that are in the areas and the catchment area of the, the two current MLR teams in the, in, in the northeast. Um, there's, there's plenty more players to come and so we are a development academy we will continue to develop players and we'll do it in different ways and so the opportunities came and we, we took it so I think that's one of the things that I've looked at like uh, you know the original when everyone was called an ODA an Olympic Development Academy I was like well I mean I'm, I was a 15s player and if I wanted to do any summer 15 stuff like no one was playing summer 15s everyone's focused on sevens in the summer and you had all the uh you know odas entering sevens teams into club sevens and it's like well you know i'm just looking to spend two weeks working you know on my throws Mm -hmm. in a better environment you know than me just throwing my ball at a tree Right, because that's that's sort of. I mean, rather than play sevens, because I don't, I hate. Uh, I'll be honest. I w- I will sit with a beer and watch sevens. I did this in San Francisco, so I know I could do it. And I will just sit and watch sevens and like love the experience. Now playing sevens, just. I mean, yep. I can I can do a bronco fine. I can like I you know run marathons, whatever. Like being fit is not a problem. I just I I, I just don't get the same. I love that the um, sevens and Bronco came into the same conversation there. It's like I can I, I can watch sevens, I can run a Bronco. It's like okay. Um, no, I, I just no, I, I just do not I just do not find the same enjoyment um, playing sevens as I do playing fifteens. That's just well, I think, look, you, you know you said it. Um, it was an ODA originally. It was an Olympic <laughs> Development Academy, and that's because sevens was in the Olympics. Um, the the stuff under review at the moment, um, the national development program isn't necessarily sevens, right? It's, it's national development program. So how are we developing players to get into the, into the national programs? And so 15s is, mm. is part of that. Um, like I said, our, our models change through, through time and we evolve and we adapt to the current climates and situations and the needs for USA rugby. Um, we, if, if we develop a 15s player, Great. We've developed plenty of them throughout the years. I mean, Nate Brakely uh, played for the academy a long, long time ago and just uh, just played in a World Cup for 15s. Um, did his sevens experience with the Northeast help his development? Absolutely. You know, does that does that mean that sevens doesn't develop 15s players? No. Um, it, it means Not that we develop, yeah. we're, we're developing players. Like it's, it's still the same game, catch, pass, tackle, run. Um, and so... If we can develop 15s players as well as 7s players, then that's great. Because what we want is we want Americans to get these contracts. We want yeah. Americans to represent their country. And that's another thing that we don't do is we don't allow any foreigners to join the Northeast or train with the Northeast. Yeah. Uh, because we are a national development program or ODA. Um, and we, we truly want to help develop American players. When you look at like what the ODA was, because I think some of these are sort of set up um, I guess on a for-profit basis, um, 
like some of them are. I mean, and you look at sort of, and then like the original certification process. And I think what the certification process became, because originally there weren't that many ODAs. And then there were a lot, you know, like, whereas like now the, the, the process that seems to be going on for, I guess, to this certification process for development program seems to be a little more holistic. Yeah, I think um, the, one, of the, one of the issues is, is that you have the certified or verified ODAs when it originally first came out. Um, and they entered these tournaments. And what, what happened then was you're, you're able to put a select side of seven players, 12 players together and play in the elite competition and do well. And that's, that's fine. Um, what the process is now is, is, is a lot more thorough. It's a lot more understanding towards long-term growth and development versus just throw 12 guys or girls together and, and play in a tournament. Because the, the actual process now is, is very thorough. And um, USA Rugby, I think, are actually doing a really good job um, on making sure that that process is a professional process and so that they can trust the organizations that uh, they want to send players to or they suggest organizations that players should go to um, because I think for a young player you have the option to play for anybody who puts academy behind their name uh, and that's that's fine an academy is a place of learning and so that's okay but there's different methods of learning and different methods of development and so I think this process is going to be a really good one to show who's actually doing the hard work versus just show up to a tournament with a bunch of select players who are already developed. Uh, so yeah, that's because yeah, I, I think we're, we're we're seeing it's interesting because people have sort of asked me like, "Hey, is there going to be MLR sevens?" And I'm I'm not like the purpose of MLR is fifteens, but you are seeing like MLR sevens teams as a basically MLR seven seems as a tool of development, because I would, if we, if you go back and look at the Washington athletic club this year, it wasn't a development team, mm-hmm. but it was, it was MLR players getting just matched on. Yeah. Of course they were going to win club sevens. You know, like you had well, a bunch of. So I would say there's different levels of development, right? So you can be, um, you know, if, if we look at the, it happens a lot in soccer. So if we take the soccer model in the UK, you can play soccer at the top level and play for a team and never get on the field, right? So then you'll go on loan to a team which is below you and get all the game time in the world. And then you'll come back next season with all that game time. So that's, there's development there. Um, we're looking at development from a younger age. Yeah. And we're not looking to develop the, you know the, the top levels in the country. That's that's not our job at the northeast. That's the that's the the governing body's job, yeah. and that's the um, the MLR's job is to develop those players. Um, well, our job is to develop the players to get to the point to have the opportunity to maybe get a contract or a national team spot. Yeah. Uh, so I guess like it's in its in a general sense, you're talking about a pivot on the men's game. Um, two fifteens. I'm guessing you're going to work on some of that with the women's game, but like the real pivot is talent ID and exposure of under 23 players because, well, uh, you know, it's, it's really, there are 30 year old guys that can, can get a contract like straight up. Like they're, those guys just happen to be talented enough and that they get their, sh- when they get their shot. And we've seen that with MLR too. Like, guys who you know because of geography or whatever were never going to get a national team shot because they lived where they lived they worked where they worked and they played division three rugby and i i think the the best one recent there are a few other others like this but the one of the best ones recently we talk about is paul mullen who um you know played division three rugby Granted, he was like a, a monster under 20, a high school American, uh, you know, in the U.S., but he was sort of in the wilderness playing Division three rugby for like four years in, at the senior club level as he was getting his master's uh, in some crazy like oceanological engineering thing. And he does things with 
algae and he, he's an intensely smart human being. But because MLR showed up, he was able to focus on his craft and he got a cap because of MLR because it we he was able to show his skills against other high level US players mm-hmm. at that time. So, I mean, you're still seeing older players get chances to play high level rugby and you, I think you'll see that for a while as the league continues to grow because we aren't necessarily in the space where really I that the in a sense I look at you know everyone talks about hey the club player here or there I think for the most part the vast majority of new signings that come into the league are going to come out of the college game and this is where you guys sort of fit is giving greater exposure opportunities whether it's in the summer whether it's at tournaments or whether it's in you know exhibition games to these college guys because you know the more tape the better you know, that, the, that's the reality. It's like the more, like I looked at, if we looked at the draft this year, I've never seen so much tape on players in a centralized place for talent ID. And I think if, for what MLR gets, like when it comes to the draft, um, it's, it's, it's a message to colleges to film their games. Yeah. And I think, I think, so one of the things I'd say there is as well is that we've got to be careful of, um, you know, we can look at all these highlights, but that they're, they're, they're highlights, right? What what are they oh, doing yeah. when what are they doing when they're not making that breakaway once or twice a game? What are they doing when they're not making that tackle or that you know throwing that pass? So, I think that's that's what colleges need to be doing more of is 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 showing or not not just colleges, clubs and and players themselves is the hi- the highlight reels are great, but we all have them, right? And it's like. Um, it's like it's like a LinkedIn profile oh, right? yeah. or, or a CV, yeah, yeah, right? So yeah. you know you, you have your CV and your CV is full of success, right? But do you have a CV of failure? Um, yeah. And I think the CV of failure shows a lot more character and a lot more ambition probably than your CV does, because you may have, for example, gone for a PhD program and not been accepted for whatever reasons, but no one knows that because it's not on your CV. Right, and that's that for me shows something. So, being able to show those games, but I think you're right. You know, the the more people film, the more people uh, study the game, the more people are exposed to putting themselves out there in ways that people can see what they have on the field is only going to benefit everybody. Highlight reels with all this music behind it, I'm not so sure. Oh, um, yeah, um, if it. So when I was going through, this was over a decade ago, but over a decade ago. If you submitted a highlight reel for football to a college, um, and they and you weren't on like their list already, and you sent your tape there, they'd throw your disc or your tape out if it had music on it, like because they're not like when they're wa- when guys are gonna watch ten minutes of you, like your your CV right, like because even when like that tape shows everything you're doing well, like they can still see tendencies and, and stuff. Right. So they're not, they don't want to be interrupted by college coaches. Don't want to be interrupted by music. I mean, yeah. so, so the, the highlight reels that we had that I looked at for MLR this summer, like when we were looking at developing our top 20 and sort of feature at list, like sort that would be a part of the content that built into the draft. The highlight reels that had music on them annoyed me. I, I, I just, I don't know. Like I, I'm in a very footballish mentality that, or and, and it's, I mean, obviously you're just, you just want to see the film. I want to see that, like the halo around the player that shows me where to look. And I watch, okay, next clip, halo, watch. And because you're, you're focusing on scouting, right? So you don't need music. So if I have to, mute the dang thing it gets very annoying but yeah i I think i think it's just a signal to say hey not just to um for highlights but if say a general manager likes the highlights of a player he goes "Hmm, i need to see more tape he's able to call the college coach and be like can i see five games from this season and you know you just get links to five different games 
and you can watch the whole thing because that's I mean that's how much you know like the Ryan Fitzgeralds and the Brandon Sparks there they watch probably hundreds of hours of film going into to this season and this is where like you have are now providing an elevated environment to whether they're college players or young senior club players going into this uh, I guess single game or may possibly a series of games this year depending on how things work out or a series of games in the future for 15s players to get a look, get a crack at the invited players of those teams, because you're going to put players on the field that other MLR teams didn't think to look at. Like that's just going to, cause that's what happened with sort of the stars guys. And that's what happened. And that's that's it. That's it. Right. It's the catchment area of these players is there's there's only certain level of, players that can play at a certain level of teams that are provided so if there's 35 players in a squad what happened to the 20 other guys that just make just missed the cut right and so what what we're able to do is provide those opportunities uh with through that and so are we going to go to utah and, and aim to win nope uh we're going to go to utah to provide an experience and an environment for these players to develop themselves and to pick themselves up and turn around and say, actually, you know what, we've got, we've got something about us here. We've got something within us or we don't, we don't want this. And, you know, for me, if I was a player, I'd say this Utah opportunity is a huge one because I can go, right, I can get my level of exposure that I need to. I, I need, I know where I'm going to be. I know where I'm at. And I've got two MLR teams in the area that I can really walk, walk, like, you know, work towards um, getting to that level. But if I don't know what that level is, I can I can then just complain that I don't get opportunities all the time. Um, and so providing those opportunities is, is step one to get that contract. That's uh, I mean, that's 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 some great stuff. Like, I mean, obviously, you know what you guys are doing, continuously providing opportunities for exposure to players. I mean, like the, the list you rattled off at the beginning just just shows what you guys are doing. And I, I really appreciate um, what. Northeast Academy has done because you know I get to with my beer appreciate as the as the player you know goes off and scores a try or I think uh, I mean Christy Kirsch is a very rapid player like when she has the ball in her hands she is also one of the most physical players I've watched like on the sevens side mm-hmm. and and that is in a sense that's interesting to watch because everyone dogs soccer as not being a physical sport, but if you really pay attention, it kind of is. Um, and it's just interesting to see sort of the passion and the ferocity Christy plays with, you know, well, she, when she was, um, so she's actually running our, uh, Instagram today. So she's, it's a day in the life of Christy Kirsch through the Northeast, um, Instagram page. Um, but she's, she was a, She's a, she was a special find, right? So she was a soccer player, as you say, but she was a football player before that. Yeah. Um, and her center of gravity is so low and she, her ability to change direction and uh, get close to a player is, is, really, is really quite special. Um, but if you talk to her about how she played soccer, she was a very physical soccer player. She grew up with, um, uh, I think she had four brothers. I may be wrong there, but... Jeez. She always, she was yeah. always the, she was always the one who was, you know, messing around and being physical and wrestling and all that kind of stuff with with her family. And so, she she grew up wanting that physical contact, uh, but she was never exposed to rugby. And her story is is quite funny, is because she she all of a sudden was, she was friends with these with these players that played for Boston. They invited her down to come and play a game. She was a little bit unsure about it. She she caught the ball this one time, and then she fell in love with the game. And then after that first game that she played, I got a call straight away. And it was, we've no idea who this player is, but she plays for Boston and you need to see her now. I was like, okay. And then I got another call and another call and another call. I'm like, okay, well, something's happening here. So we, I invited Christy down to our first training session and we just did a warm-up. Obviously, we introduced, hi, nice to meet you, all that kind of stuff. We did a warm-up with a tennis ball. And the first time that she moved towards a tennis ball, I was like, right, she has something here. Like, instantaneous. Just the way she, her balance, her physical attributes, all of that kind of thing were just incredible. Just from catching that tennis ball. And I, and I still remember it, seeing it. And then I was like, huh, 
okay, we've got something here. And then we watch her develop and we, we, we see her grow. We move her around the field. She played it on the wing to begin with just because she was fast. Uh, and then we moved her into hooker. And then we moved her into the center and into scrum half. And we played her in all these different positions. And she was brilliant. Uh, and it was it was natural. And all, all we did was fast forward. And we were almost a catalyst towards her development. And then six months later, she has a contract with the U.S. Um, about eight, but by this time, she was running rings around Heather Fisher, um, who was, you know, one of the world's best players at one point. She's running rings around her. She doesn't know who she is. She just hasn't been exposed to this game before. She just sees player, ball. Okay, I've got to beat you. Um, and it was it was great to see. And it was it was just such a such a, a fast but natural unforced progression for her. Um, but that's what that's what the Northeast can do is, you know, we otherwise she she probably would still be playing at Boston and you know, Boston are a great club, which she got the development that she needed that fast to get to the national team level. No, she had a lot of work to do when she got to the national team level as well. You know, Chris Brown has done a great job of developing her from the raw talent that we almost gave her to the national team as. Um, but she had that platform to to be exposed to different environments and different players and different levels and different coaches. And then, you know, fast forward that progression. Well, I mean, I guess that sort of uh, encapsulates what, uh, what Northeast Rugby Academy does um is you know um supplement development and provide exposure opportunities to players so that they can then be seen by national team coaches or selectors and uh achieve you know a great opportunity a great opportunity to then continue their development and and be selected and get a cap and represent the country so um yep that's in a nutshell, yes. So, that, so there you go, everyone. Um, thanks, everyone, for um, sticking around and watching this. Um, Richard, thank you very much uh, for the uh, for the lowdown on everything you guys do. Um, I'm obviously I pay attention on on the internet, sort of watching what you guys do via Twitter. Um, but this is this detailed dig into um, what Northeast does, what your philosophy is was uh really uh i really enjoyed it and i hope whoever listens to this when it goes out on podcast because we went out on facebook as well um they, they get what you guys are trying to do in uh the northeast yeah and i'll just give one more plug as well so um i now work as well for arptc uh which is jules one of my jules. favorite people um and so we, we have a uh, we had a fall uh, sorry a summer residency program uh, this summer during COVID and it was great because we had we controlled our bubble as we called it and what we did was we were able to uh, develop players for for ten ten weeks uh, daily training environment and the players grew dramatically there and we have a fall session as well starting September twenty uh, seventh so if any players listen to this reach out to Jules and uh, come and develop your skills and your rugby IQ and your game at ARPTC this, this fall, uh, because we're, we're doing it again and it's going to be a good, good fall session. Well, uh, thank you very much and uh, have a great week. This has been Lineouts by Earful of Dirt. Connect with Earful of Dirt online. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Earful of Dirt. You can email us at earfulofdirt at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 720-600-2679. For Aaron, Dan, and Victor, I'm Corey. Thanks for listening.